Howard Shore has composed the scores for over 80 films, including The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit trilogies. He has three Academy Awards, three Golden Globe Awards, and four Grammy Awards on his shelves, and was the original musical director for the American show Saturday Night Live from 1975 to 1980. He's also a collaborator with David Cronenberg, having scored all but one of his films from 1979. He also... Uh, composed a few concert works, including one opera, The Fly, based on the plot of Cronenberg's 1986 film. We're going to talk about a lot of that stuff, but uh, today we're going to start by talking about The Song of Names, uh, a new film, uh, your latest project, and uh, this is uh, based on the award-winning novel by a music scholar named Norman uh, Lebrecht, and it's uh, a story of friendship, betrayal, reconciliation, but it's a story about music. And uh, much of the music in this film that we hear played by uh, the the young violinist who the story kind of revolves around uh, was written by my guest, Howard Shore. So welcome. Nice to see you. Hi, Richard, and very nice to be here with your audience. Thank you. So... Let's talk a little bit about the research that must have gone into creating the music here. The, the, the song, the piece that I'm thinking of is uh, the title piece, the Song of Names. Perhaps you can explain what the significance of it is in the movie and then the research that goes behind creating something like this. Uh, the Song of Names is, is a prayer of remembrance. <clears throat> and it was, uh, it's sung in a shul in outside of london stoke newington in a scene uh that's towards the end of the film i don't want to give away we too don't want to give away too much but, but the song itself is a song of remembrance for people who have passed in the holocaust right it is a list of names uh and it is a haunting and beautiful piece of music that uh for me is the emotional highlight or the emotional high point of the film I will give away <laughs> okay. no more details than that. Okay. Tell me a little bit then about the research that goes into this because um, such things exist, but you wrote right. this particular one for this film and it has to be authentic. It has to sound real. It has, it, it, there, there's a lot of, I would imagine, pressure on you to get this right. Well, there was, yes. I mean, the, the film is named for the song <laughs> in particular. <clears throat> but I, I had to go back in time and find uh, a sound, a cantorial uh, s singer, you mm -hmm. know, to, to find a, a person who could do this, could read music, could un learn a, a new piece, could act in the scene, uh, could portray a cantor yeah. in a small shul outside of uh, London after the war. Um, that was very difficult, and we actually uh, we studied the. You know, I went back and studied the cantorial tradition as much as I could in terms of recordings, mm -hmm. and there are quite a few uh, recordings that I was able to listen to. But it wasn't until I found uh, Shalom Katz's recording, uh, El Mole Rakamim, and and that really was the key to me to, to finding the expression for this piece. Because these these pieces are a, a manifestation of oral history. So right. in these death camps, 
the 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 survivors would remember people's past and remember their existence by creating songs uh, of which were lists of names of the people that they had known who had perished in the camps. And so I'm surprised to find that there are so many recordings of them. No, there weren't recordings of this particular uh, uh, prayer. Mm. What what there are, there's songs of, there's prayers of remembrance. Right. Uh, not specific to, these, to this particular story or mm-hmm. to the, you know, to the death camps, as you say. But uh, what I tried to do was create a piece that would be authentic for, the, right. for that period, mm-hmm. 1951. And I came of age in the 50s, and uh, my father started a synagogue in uh, Toronto, Beth Sholem Synagogue. And so I spent the best part of the 50s in the synagogue listening to cantors that were part of the mm-hmm. weekly service and uh, and also hearing uh, cantors that were brought into the synagogue to sing at the high holidays. So I had that sound and I was really searching uh, for that sound, you know, to be able to create it. I mm-hmm. had to go back into my memory. Yeah, it's almost part of your DNA, that. you know. It, yeah. it, it, it was, yes. So it was very emotional. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, it brought me closer to my father, who's passed many years now. But um, it brought back a lot of memories of that period. It was very cathartic to me to go back and create something like that musically. I want to go back, though. You you mentioned uh, growing up in Toronto. You mentioned uh, your father. When you were a youngster growing up in Toronto, there was a library near where you lived. And this library uh, was your access point to a great deal of the music yeah. that influenced you greatly. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Uh, St. Clair Avenue Road. There was, <laughs> there was the library which had a great music uh, s- section, and I could take out... Uh, th- this is now going into the si- 1960s, mm-hmm. but I could take out vinyl... Uh, Recordings and a lot of reel-to-reel works, and I discovered right. music from all over the world. I mean, I found Toru Takemitsu's music and uh, a great Japanese composer who worked with Kurosawa and did many of his films, great films. And uh, I met, I found George Delarue in France and Nina Rota, and so that really kind of sparked my interest uh, in film music. Mm-hmm. Uh, was from the library. And I was listening to a lot of contemporary music as well, electronic music, and they had uh, recordings of Takamitsu's uh, uh, electronic music, which, uh, I, which I still have a really wonderful collection of. So the library, to me, really became the source of all the knowledge for music. I studied composition at the Berklee School of Music in Boston, mm-hmm. And they really pointed me towards the library as well. So <laughs> that's where I discovered I could take take out scores and study them, and that that was really you know my uh, my classroom. And and why film music? Was it the sense of drama? Was it the sense that you could listen to it and then go to the movie and see it brought to life on the screen? What mm. what was it? Well, my interest has always been in music, and I think with film. Um, it allowed me into the recording studio. I was also interested in technology and mm-hmm. in recording and, uh, and, and, and electronic music. So I thought film music 
to me, always seemed experimental mm-hmm. in a way, particularly the composers that I was listening to, like Takamitsu. So I thought this would be a way to work with great musicians, to be in the recording studio, and to be creating uh, film music, essentially a recording art. So it, was, it, it encapsulated all the things that I was interested in. And then, of course, there was the bonus of actually working with great directors and writers. And when I was younger, I did. I was part of a repertory group, and uh, who became my friends became writers and directors and actors, right. and and so uh, film allowed me a lot of expression in terms of what I was interested in musically. I think in Canada in mm-hmm. those days, because we're talking now, I would imagine the late '60s into the '70s, and there was an explosion. Right? There's an explosion yeah. of cultural awareness. We start making our own movies and not relying on importing things from England and the United States solely. Uh, television really takes off, and there's a need for people to create music, to act. Yeah. To the, and it must have been a really exciting time. It was. I mean, I worked at CBC Radio and CBC uh, Television and did variety shows with Lauren, early Saturday Night Live. Lauren Michaels, yeah. Yeah, Lauren Michaels. So early Saturday Night Live. We Lauren and I did CBC Radio as well. And um, I went into the building on uh, Jarvis, I mm-hmm. think, the CBC, and yep. I said, I'm a young uh, musician. I was quite young at the time. You know, I was probably like 18 or 19, and they gave me a little office with no windows that had an old piano. I remember it. that building, yeah. And uh, it was like a kind of like a closet, but I had a, I had my own room, and I, I did some uh, radio shows and wrote music for radio. So, I mean, they really welcomed uh young uh, musicians, composers, you know, songwriters. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful time, actually. I remember that building on Jarvis Street because... Uh, one of my first gigs for CBC, I was so excited to go in there. It was the legendary building. Everyone had worked there. Right. And so I go in and I'm told, you're going to be in Studio, whatever it was, 3B. So I go in and I'm waiting outside of Studio 3B and they're like, Lister St. Clair is in there. I'm like, Lister St. Clair, this, he's a legend. And uh, the, the door opens and Lister comes out and he's very nice. He introduces himself to me. And I walk into the room and it's literally a broom closet with a, an exposed <laughs> light bulb hanging from the ceiling and yeah. a microphone. And I was like, this is not glamorous. It is the CBC, <laughs> right. and it's national, and it's everything that I wanted, but it's not glamorous. Mm-hmm. Early days. <laughs> the yes. early days yeah. of all of this. Yeah. He has three Academy Awards, three Golden Globes, and four Grammy Awards on his shelves. Where do you keep all of that? Does any of that stuff matter? Do you like? Do you wake up in the morning and you go, look at those. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. Uh, <laughs> I might have a career doing this. <laughs> They're in the studio yeah. in, in New York, and uh, I, I work with a few uh, uh, great people, and uh, James Sizemore, Alan Frey. So mm-hmm. they they see them. They're they're part of my life, part yeah. of my work. So they they get to enjoy them as well. And people who come to visit can see them. I think if I had an Academy Award, I would wear it on a chain around my neck all <laughs> the time. Is it exciting when you're up there? Accepting the award, and you're looking down, and you know Jack Nicholson's in the front row, and all that. Do you, does any of that register for you? I've heard that when you're up there, particularly the first time, that it's just kind of you kind of almost black out because of mm-hmm. of 
you know, it's, it is for so many people the pinnacle of, of what they wanted to achieve. I think what happens is, is that you all – it's point of view. Mm. And you always watch the Oscars from the point of view of the audience because you watch it on television. Mm-hmm. So when you go up on stage and you turn around, you're seeing another view that <laughs> <laughs> only people who are going up there to achieve the award right. are seeing. So that's kind of – that's where the blackout yeah. happens because you're looking out into this theater and it's dark. And and it's like you, you know you, uh, you it takes a moment to adjust to that. Well, I I always that. think these people are are performers, and then they get up on stage and they just seem to they start to weep and cry and 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 listen. I get it. It's a big big moment, but uh, it it is always surprising to be the reaction sometimes. It's good to be prepared. Yes. if you are gonna. Yeah, it, yeah, win or lose, you right. have to be ready either yeah. way. And did you plan, and this is my last question about the Academy Awards, but did you plan uh, your loser face? So if they didn't call your name, that you would be still, because the camera's going to cut to you. And did you have like a, a practice smile that you were going to use just so you don't look like, oh, damn it, I didn't yeah. win. I didn't, yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't think I really had a chance Really? Of winning, yeah. I was just happy to be there. I was so happy on Fellowship of the Ring, yeah. I was just to be in the theater. That that was that was fun yeah. enough for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, we were talking about uh, the Song of Names film in theaters right now that really concentrates on uh, a, a violin player from youth through to early adulthood, uh, who then uh, takes a different path in life. That's all I'm going to tell you about it. And then it becomes sort of a detective story. But there's a great deal of violin playing in the film that looks very authentic to me. And I was surprised to read that these uh, young actors aren't violin players. Now, were you aware of that as you were um, composing some of the music that they would play? Well, it, it didn't affect the music that I was writing for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray Chen was our violinist. He was our great artist who played all the violin music. Mm-hmm. And um, just in terms of authenticity, the young Davidil, um, who could play the violin, he's a pretty good violinist. He's about, it was about 11 or 12, I think. And... Uh, but he plays, you know, the, when you're that age, you play a three-quarter violin. Right, you play a smaller violin. Smaller yeah. violin. Francois had Ray Chen play on a smaller violin <laughs> to get that sound. That's how uh, authentic he was wow. trying to, yeah. to make the violin sound. Uh, Francois had a lot of experience working with actors on the red violin, mm-hmm. and he's got great techniques uh, for shooting uh, actors playing the violin. Uh, Clive Owen had to learn his parts and, and learn how to exp- you know, mm-hmm. f- finger and bow the instrument correctly. And um, the, But there was no real consideration for their, you know, for what they had to achieve. Right. The music was created to tell the story of the film, and then they had to learn to then play. Then they have to figure it out from yes, there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Francois had to work work his magic in in creating it. And it's about how you it shoot to, it and edit. And, yeah. yeah, so the angles all look mm-hmm. great. Yeah. I had often wondered if there was, like, you know, someone else's hand 
just playing the, the, the chords or something and they're just sort of yeah. out of sight or I, 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 I'm, I'm always interested to know how that sort of thing. I'm not going to give away his I, techniques. I will not say. They've been, I, they've been developed over time <laughs> and he's, he's really good. I was amazed too when he started to tell me how he does right. these things. And, but he's got uh, beautiful techniques that he developed. You know, for shooting uh, the violin. You also played, so we talked a little bit earlier, and we'll touch on this just at the end of this segment. You were studying composition, and then you started playing with Lighthouse, mm-hmm. the rock band Lighthouse. Yes. And uh, they were, I mean, unusual for the time. There were horn sections, there's a, a, a string section. You played alto saxophone mm-hmm. uh, with them. What are your memories of playing with Lighthouse? Well, they're fond. They're, they're good memories. Yeah. Um, I was on the road with Lighthouse 69 to 72. Wow. And we toured with Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, uh, Janis Joplin, Big Brother and The Holding Company. Uh, we played at Fillmore. I did, I think, a thousand one-nighters. We would do about 250 <laughs> a year. Wow. All across America and Canada. We played in England as well, Japan we journeyed to. Uh, I'd made eight albums uh, with the band, and uh, they were. They, it was it. It was a great period because I was young. I was traveling. I was a bit like Zelig in a way because I felt yeah. like I was watching this whole world, uh, you know, uh, unfold. Like you know, we were at the Isle of Wight. We opened for Jimi Hendrix at the Isle of Wight. Wow. So I'm watching everything from backstage and just soaking it all in. And it, it was a, a great experience. And the, played the at Carnegie see. Hall with them? Exactly. And yeah, we mean, made, made a recording at Carnegie, a live recording. And which was a huge, huge hit. It's a good record. It's a good record. It's a yeah. double, good double record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about the Hart and Lorne Terrific Hour. Uh, this was... Uh, Hart Pomerantz and, and Lauren Michaels long before Saturday Night Live, but it was kind of a precursor for that, and you were the musical director on it. Yes, uh, it was a, a, a comedy variety show, much in the uh, world of Monty Python in England and Laugh-In in America. And uh, Lauren and I <clears throat> uh, grew up in the same area of Toronto, and we went to summer camp in northern Ontario in Halliburton at Camp Timberland. And we did uh, a show at Saturday night. It was a co-ed camp. And on Saturdays, the the uh, camps would get together and there'd be a dance, mm-hmm. uh, like a social, a sock right. hop. Kind of <laughs> we'd play records and dance. And uh, in the middle of the show, we would do we, uh, sketches and comedy routines right. and... Uh, improvisation, uh, some lip syncing, cho- choreography, <laughs> that kind of thing. And that was really the beginnings, I always felt, of Saturday Night Live. It was like a variety show on, sa- on yeah. Saturday night. And um, it, then we, we, Lord and I did CBC Radio together and, uh, and then CBC Television. And I, I kind of functioned in the same way as I did on Saturday Night Live as the music director. Of yeah, the and, and tell me about those days, because I, 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 I look back at those shows, they are still exciting, 
they're still funny. I see the I see the, uh, the they rerun them every now and again. I've got a number of them on DVD, that kind of thing, and I watch them, and it just feels like it was the hippest place in the world to be. That's interesting. You know, the house band on the show was Lighthouse. I didn't and, know that in the very beginning. Yeah, because it was a recorded show. It wasn't a live show, right. Lauren Terrific Hour. So I used Lighthouse, right. which was the group that I was yeah, yeah. with at the time. <clears throat> and they did the uh, recordings, you know, the pre-records yeah. and the post-records. They were like the house band. Right. And so there's probably some connection between Hart and Lauren music and into Saturday Night Live in terms of R&B mm-hmm. and my love of Stax Volt and Junior yeah. Walker. And it kind of led into that. And and when you're in New York on Saturday Night Live performing, those shows, uh, uh, again, you know, that's what I meant, the hippest place in the world. Everyone was, George Carlin was there all the time. It was, it, was it exciting or was the pressure of doing something that felt so different uh, that was on at a time when it used to just be reruns or remember they used to actually like NBC would go off the air at midnight, I think not long before Saturday Night Live came on. What was that like? It was kind of a a part of television that was forgotten. It was like (laughs) test tubes were being (laughs) shown. And so nobody was really paying attention for years. And there were these kids up on the 17th floor <clears throat> at Ro- in Rockefeller Center. Yeah. Nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> and uh, we we started putting out these shows. They were, you know, we were creating them as we were going. We didn't have a, uh, a form yet. We were mm-hmm. creating the form. And it was very, free-we- very freewheeling, uh, very creative. There was a lot of... Uh, uh, work being done on the 17th floor that we would then take down and broadcast. Right. And we didn't always know what the show was going to be. We were discovering it as we were doing it. And that kind of went on for a few years until the rest of America started discovering it. It became And there were a great many Canadians popular. there. Dan Aykroyd, yes. you, Lauren Michaels, I'm missing, and some of the writers I, I, I think were Canadian. So yeah. it... it, it Gilda was from Detroit. Gilda was from Detroit, but spent but a lot close. of time in, in Canada. Yeah, yeah. close. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I look back on those shows with such fondness. You know, they, they, they really, they spoke to a generation, a generation that wanted something different. Yeah. And, and, and they, for me, are, are extremely important. Yeah, we were just following our comedy roots. Yes. We yeah. were trying to put on a show the best that we could do. I mean, it. The show started with a group of maybe 12 or 15 people in a room going, can you dance? Can you sing? Can you play an instrument? What can you do? We've got 90 minutes of television to produce this this week live. Yeah. Uh, let's get together and write a show, you know, put on a show. I think people would be surprised, too, at how small that studio is, Studio 8H, that yeah. they do the show in. I've been yeah. a couple of times, and it is uh, tiny they are very clever with their use of the stages, how, how it looks like it, there's, there's all sorts of, of room. There's three little stages, as I recall, and, and uh, there's not many people in the room, maybe 200 people in the audience, and it is just uh, so electric when you're in the middle of it. It looks small because there's so, many, there's so much uh, staging in it. Mm-hmm. But I remember the first time I went in the studio, it was completely empty. It was built for Toscanini. Right, for a big and, orchestra. And the right? NBC yeah. <laughs> orchestra. 
And I remember the first rehearsal I did, I asked one of the <clears throat> older stagehands that was there, that was probably there, uh, you know, at the end of the Toscanini period. Right. And I said, do you have a music stand? I want to put my scores on. And I'm there with this R&B mm -hmm. group, the house band. And uh, he brought out Toscanini's wow. <laughs> music stand. <laughs> but there was no podium. So it was very high. It came up to my chin. It was very ornate, oak carved uh, music stand. Did you end up using that? For no, no, no. I said, I think this is not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about the the uh, song of names uh, because I want to talk about how you actually uh, compose, your, your method. Uh, I interviewed uh, a composer a number of uh, years ago who wrote with Ken Russell frequently, and he lived on an island off Scotland. And it wasn't until about midway through the interview that he said to me, oh, yeah, we don't have electricity. In the, in the days when I was working with Ken Russell, it was 1970, 71. We don't have electricity. I have to scour the beach for driftwood to heat the, the little house that I live in. And, uh, and I don't have a piano here. And I'm like, well, how do you write the score? And he said, well, I, I, I hear it in my head and then I write it down. That's essentially correct. Is that it? Yes. Man, I, 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 that, that you may have, you may as well have just told me that you can uh, make yourself invisible. It's a superpower <laughs> that I don't understand. Well, I think of, you know, music, because I learned to write very young with a pencil. My teacher, I was studying the clarinet. My teacher was Morris Weinzweig, who is John Weinzweig's brother. John Weinzweig being the dean of uh, Canadian contemporary right. music. And Morris, his brother, was a woodwind player, and he thought his young student, besides the clarinet lesson, should also learn harmony and counterpoint. Right. So he t had these little primers that he made me do these exercises in every week. And uh, I learned to write music from Morris Weinzweig and when I was about 10 years old. And over the years, I made a living playing woodwinds, clarinets, flutes, saxophones, but I eventually put them down and just kept the pencil going. <laughs> so now the pencil moves every day, and uh, music to me is very much a visual art because I'm cr creating it in that, vi in that visual way. I'm transferring my ideas from my, from my feelings, my emotion, onto the page in uh, in that way. That is incredible. I want to go back uh, and, and talk about working with uh, some of the directors that you've worked with over the years. And I'm just going to start, if you don't mind, throwing out some names and, and see okay. if I can get some some reminiscences. That, I don't know how to say that word. Some memories from you. Uh, David Cronenberg, you've worked with him so often. Uh, what is it about David Cronenberg that uh, is such a good fit for you? Uh, brilliant director, uh, great friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's uh, a visionary f filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And he was our, our leader, our guide. David is a few years older than me, but he feels light years older than me because he's always thinking so much mm -hmm. ahead of us. And we're always trying to catch up to David's thinking. I, I read an interview that he gave recently in the Globe and Mail where he said he might be done with films uh, because he said, nah, nobody goes to the movies anymore and he's looking for the next thing. Yeah. It's amazing that that uh, that 
he has had such a storied career and is still always interested in just what's over the hill. Always, yes. I hope he's not finished with it. You know what? Then I read that he's making something for Netflix. So <laughs> I, 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 I don't think he will be done with it ever. Fingers crossed. And, and he'll write another novel. He wrote a book called Consumed that Wonderful. was pretty great. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, Martin Scorsese, you've, you've worked with him. What was, uh, what was the, that? So I, I, I've met him a number of times. Uh, you wrote After Hours uh, uh, for him. I love that movie. But when I think of Martin Scorsese, I think of meeting him and he just talks a mile a minute and he's very fast and, and it's, it's just this like this yeah. Tasmanian Manian devil of energy in front yeah. of Yeah. Brilliant director. I did uh, five films mm-hmm. with him in a documentary. And uh, he's wonderful to work with. He, he's, uh, you know, we know he's a visionary uh, filmmaker, but he's also brilliant with music. And he loves music. Mm-hmm. And I think that was our connection, was uh, the mutual Love of music, and uh, I love working with Thelma Schoonmacher, his great yeah. editor. And so to spend time with them was was really a gift. Joy. Well, the score for The Aviator is interesting because it bridges the gap uh, between the silent film era and the sound mm-hmm. uh, film era, and That's right. the music for both those eras is very different. We're talking about the the 20s up till about 1928 and then uh, the silent era and then beyond that. And the music changed. So that must have been a challenge for you, I suppose, to do the research, to be able to convey that without being showy about it, I think. Fascinating period for me Mm -hmm. because there was 35 years of a silent film. uh, And those films mostly all had music. So you could do the research back and discover amazing pieces that some written original pieces created for silent film, uh, most lost to time or or not not heard very some, often silent, anymore. Yes. Yeah, uh, and then a Hugo is a, another film I did mm-hmm. with uh, with Marty, and uh, which also bridges that period. So. I guess we spent a little time, <laughs> you know, in that from the silent to right. the to the sound era. Fascinating. Uh, Peter Jackson, you've worked with him so often. These films were so phenomenally successful. Do you remember uh, the first time you saw the Lord of the Rings on a screen? Because you're not on set while they're while they're making this. Mm-hmm. Do you see? I guess it's a rough cut that you see first. Is that how it works? Uh, well, uh, Peter called me and invited me to New Zealand to look at. Uh, uh, what they were creating there. And I was so intrigued by the phone call that I went down there and he showed me maybe about uh, 15 minutes of the film. And it was fantastic. It was unbelievable. I'd never seen anything quite like that. And then I met Alan Lee and John Howe, the great Tolkien illustrators. And I saw a lot of the artwork and production design for the film. And what they were creating in New Zealand was so unique that you wanted to be a part of it. It was fascinating, really. Were these books that had resonated with you over time, or was this something new for you? I read them when I was on the road with Lighthouse, those long (laughs) trips. Those thousand one-nighters. Yeah, Yeah, I read read, uh, Tolkien during that period. And uh, that was in the 60s, so I didn't talk to Peter till 2000. And I didn't know about the film. I didn't know what they, you know, that it was even being made. Mm -hmm. I was just, uh, you know, so I kind of picked up where I left off and immediately was really inspired and and 
wanted to to work on it. I didn't know what a daunting task it would really be. I'd never uh, created uh, three films like that with that much music. I mean, the score, I think, is about 12 or 13 hours for the three films. And uh, so I wasn't really sure what I was setting <laughs> off to. But I think we kind of worked very closely together. There was a lot of camaraderie. It was really a fellowship creating the films as well. We all helped each other. It was hard work. And uh, the, the results are, I think, so successful because it was so much, it was so truthful. It was from our heart, really. We wanted to do a good job uh, to create these uh, films from the books that we love so much. Those movies were made uh, essentially all at the same time. And so it was there kind of like a bunker feel to the whole thing. You've got so much happening. The eyes of the world are on there. They were highly anticipated. And these Lord of the Rings movies started coming out and people went wild for them. Did you feel a sense of relief when the first one opened and people embraced it? We wanted the first one to be successful because the other two would hinge on the success of the first yeah. one. So when, when Fellowship of the Ring uh, was successful, that we kind of breathed. A, a little, a little bit easier, you know, but uh, but but we couldn't breathe too long because Two Towers was right upon <laughs> us right. and it was coming the next year, so it was continuous, uh, continuous work, really, to create the films. And the thing that I found interesting about the three of them together is that each one exceeds the other one. You know, right. we went from Fellowship to Two Towers and created even a broader. Uh, canvas to the story because it expands in two towers. And then Return of the King is so brilliantly created and the 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 uh, the production design is amazing. And so each film kind of upped the filmmaking mm -hmm. technique of, make, of making those films. Like we had – nobody had ever seen the character Gollum before. I know. Uh, Gollum, uh, Andy Serkis's work as Gollum is a, a revelation because I thought I'd read the books and I thought, there's no way. Right. There's no way I'm going to care about this character, <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden you do. You're brought in. So the technology was Im was improving as well as the filmmaking. It was all happening at the same time. Uh, uh, they were great filmmakers. That's an exciting really. time. Yeah. So when you read a screenplay, do you compose music for a specific character or do you compose do, – do you think of it as a whole? I'm looking for the, the, the center of the story, the heart of the story to begin to, to create. And I need to feel something emotionally to write uh, for film. So I'm, I'm – I, usually I'll – I like to read, so I'll read the source material. If it's Tolkien, I'm reading the book constantly. It's open on my desk all the time. But I also did that with Cronenberg films like Crash, G.G. Ballard's Crash and William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. There, those, those works were always uh, being read by me as I was writing music. And then, of course, the scripts are important, how the screenplays relate to the source material. And then I'm influenced the most probably by the actual uh, f uh, 
you know, editing and mm-hmm. how the actors move and the, the lighting and the color of the production design and um, how the actors create the roles and, and, and how, how the piece is edited. This all affects uh, how I'm writing music. But generally in terms of uh, approach, I could just say that I'll work with the ideas of the film first mm-hmm. without actually dealing with the, the film itself. And then I'll write music based on the ideas because I want that freedom to create a, a composition. Sometimes I'll write 40, 50 minutes of music just based on, the, on my feelings of the right. film like I was an audience member watching it. And then I go through another process of orchestration and actually scoring this composition and placing it into the film and expanding it and developing it. So it's, it's a step-by-step process. When you are writing, and you've told me that you, you think of music as a visual art now because you write, uh, you, 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 you write it, you hear it in your head and you write it down. What's it like, we only have a minute left, what's it like when you hear it for the first time played by an orchestra? Does it sound like it sounds in your head? Well, it used to be exciting, and what you're trying to do is create the sound that's Mm -hmm. in your head. So uh, it used to be uh, revelatory when I was much younger. Mm -hmm. Now, having written so much music and orchestrated so much, that I, I'm, what I'm trying to do now is just create the sound that's (laughs) in my head, which is actually pretty difficult because you're hearing the great performance. So you're working with the artist, you're working with the musicians, the orchestra, the chorus, the singers to really create the, the you know, the, the great recording. And, uh, and then that's, you know, part of the recording process. Uh, Mr. Shore, what a pleasure yeah. to speak to you. Thank you so much for great. taking the time to, to speak with me. I've been speaking with Howard Shore. Uh, the film, The Song of Names, is in theaters right now. Uh, check out the music in this. There is the song that we started the, the show off by speaking about uh, that I'm still thinking about. And that, I think, is a sign of a great bit of film music. Uh, my thanks to you. My thanks Thank to you. Andre and the board. And most of all, my thanks to you for listening. We'll thanks talk again so next week. Good to be Thank with you. you. Thank you.